Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I have a really good friend named Carol Ladderbottom, and she didn't like her name at all, so she changed it to Helen. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. You just got a joke from Patty Schemmel, former drummer of the band Hole. That'll break the ice. Later, she will pound out a drum-centric party playlist for you. All right. Yeah. Plus, we speak with art school graduate Abby Jacobson, co-star and co-creator of the TV hit Broad City, and host of A Piece of Work, her podcast about modern art. Also coming up, comedian and author Whitney Cummings has advice for fantasy football spouses. Mm. Filmmaker Angela Robinson tells the tale of the boundary-busting creator of Wonder Woman. And I learn about laminated baguettes. Don't worry, they're edible. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The GOP majority in Congress has its joint budget resolution. Another actress has accused movie producer Harvey Weinstein of sexual harassment. Dodgers win game one. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Rebecca Lehrer. She is co-host of the podcast The Mashup Americans. They are launching their new season with a live event at the Green Space in NYC on Monday the 30th. Rebecca, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, I'm going to be talking about the Venice Marathon Venice, California? No, Venice, Italy. Oh, the other okay. one. Yeah, the other yeah, Venice. That one's you nice, know, too. It's what abs. So it wasn't in the water. It wasn't in the canals. It was actually people run there. There are streets. I don't know if you knew that. Um, <laughs> so for the first time in 22 years, an Italian, Ayab Faniel, and I, I apologize for the pronunciation, but he won. So typically competitors from other countries win. Yeah, but the best part of the story is that he won because one of the motorcycles that lead the marathon you know, they sort of lead the path. They sort and of show them where they're supposed they're to supposed, run. Yeah, exactly, where they're supposed to go. He just took a wrong turn. So all okay. of the top runners, the top six runners, went the wrong way. And this local Venetian guy was like, what? Uh, I know the right way to go. And he won the marathon. That is amazing. That's yeah. a, it, it occurs to me that's actually kind of a big deal for Venice because I know that there are fewer and fewer locals. They're sort of being driven out by tourism. Sure. Well, now mm. they can really celebrate the one of three locals left. <laughs> They're marathon winner. So let me get this straight. So these people that were in the lead weren't from Italy and they followed the motorcycle and yeah. this Italian kept going. They were like, usually the motorcycle leads me the correct way. <laughs> I wonder if there are any shady organizations in Italy who are known for fixing Oh, things. might have. Uh... Hey. I'm not saying I didn't have that thought. I'm not saying <laughs> I have no idea. Either way, it's a great story. Yeah. Rebecca Lara, thank you for the small talk. Thank you. Now, this way for music. That's right. It's time for our dinner party soundtrack, wherein a musician gets to play DJ and where turntable meets actual table. Oh, I like that. You're welcome. And here to help is Patty Schemmel. Longtime drummer for the band Hole and a slew of other rock, grunge, and indie bands. Her new memoir, Hit So Hard, delves deep into her relationship with Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain, her addiction and homelessness, and her eventual recovery. Here's Patty with a playlist for rockers and cake lovers. Hi, I'm Patty Schemmel. I'm a drummer and an author. For this party, I want to play three very drum centric songs that are personal favorites of mine. So here we go. Song one is by the Beatles. It's on Revolver. That came out in 1966. And the song is called Tomorrow Never Knows. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. It 
opens with this interesting sort of, it sounds like, it actually to me, I've always thought it was like it's a seagull. <laughs> sounds like a seagull. But listen, you'll, you'll, you know, everyone has their own idea. That was the Beatles sort of step into that psych when they were experimenting with their meditation and their guru phase. What I love about it is it's kind of an unconventional beat. It's not the standard 4-4 rock beat. So at this point, probably some hors d'oeuvres would be out like on a little breadboard, drinks. I love sparkling water. (laughs) The second song I play is by Susie and the Banshees from their record Kaleidoscope, which came out in 1980. And the song is Christine. I love the song. It's by one of my favorite drummers, Budgie is his name. And what I love about it is, again, it's not a traditional drum part. It's, it's like another melody inside the song. It's interesting because just where he puts his accents, it doesn't take up space. It's really smart where he places things. The term tasty comes up to me. <laughs> like the way he uses his hi-hat to accent. For all three of these songs, when the um, drums come in, it sort of sets the scene for the song. If it's a vehicle, it now we're moving. <laughs> song number three is by Led Zeppelin. It's the first song on physical graffiti, and it's called Custard Pie. John Bonham was special, and, and like so many people love him because the sound of his drums. He took his blues and jazz sensibilities and put them into that rock. And it was the melding of those two things that created the amazing uh, Led Zeppelin sound. There's a fill in this song towards the end It's like snare, tom, floor tom. And that's it. And it's the simplest. (laughs) It's like, here's a space, opens up, and he just does one, two, three, with the space. He could have done some craziness there, but he just chose that. It's his choices that are awesome. I've decided to end the night with a song called We Do Not Belong. This is a song by a band I played in uh, called Psychic Friend with my friend Will Schwartz. There's this cool shuffle thing in the chorus that 
It's satisfying. I like to use that word as far as, you know, like drum parts that are like, yes, satisfied. We don't want to go, So it's probably the good nights and the hugs and the please take it. You got to take it because, you know, I can't have the sugar this week or whatever. And then no one wants it because nobody else is, everybody else is doing the same thing. Then I'm eating the, you know, chocolate cake at 8 a.m. on Sunday. And then I get busted. My wife will walk in, hey, really? Chocolate cake, 8 a.m.? And I'll say, how do you know? She'll go, you, you didn't clean up the crumbs. They're everywhere. Drummer Patty Schemmel, her new autobiography is called Hit So Hard. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, Brendan tastes a baguette with a shiny new makeover, mm. and Broad City star Abby Jacobson talks about being inspired by great art and by self-confident artists. I found it very refreshing to hear a woman not be humble. That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, later comic and author Whitney Cummings, the co-creator of TV's Two Broke Girls, teaches us how to write roast jokes. And in a few minutes, the geniuses behind the podcast Mortified share a Halloween-appropriate story. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's Abby Jacobson. She and her co-writer and co-star Alana Glazer created the Comedy Central hit Broad City. It chronicles the adventures of two young, penniless women trying to make it in New York City. But before Broad City, Abby attended art school. She emerges that training with her comic sensibilities on her podcast. It's called A Piece of Work, produced in conjunction with New York's Museum of Modern Art. When Brendan spoke with Abby, he had to start by getting something off his chest. When I found out about your podcast, I was like, why couldn't Abby leave the podcasting to us audio nerds? <laughs> you know, she's already written books and she has a television show. She's an actor. I mean, what gives? There were a lot of audio nerds involved in, in the podcast, if mm. that makes you feel better. Okay. It's a big group effort. Well, I was relieved to find that you made a rookie error in that you made an audio show about something visual. <laughs> so how did you approach that challenge? In the beginning, I was sort of like, why are we talking about these visual things? But, you know, how many critiques do you read about film. That's fair. Yeah. It's all those other ways of discussing. Mm. It's just another medium to like talk about the thing. So at first I really didn't know what my tone or voice was going to be and how exactly I was going to make this visual thing uh, in audio form. And throughout the two months, we really found it. Well, let's hear an example of the style you struck upon. So close your eyes. If you're driving, do not close your eyes. Save this one maybe for later. But everyone else, I want you to close your eyes and imagine a single color, like pink. Imagine that a light, beautiful pink is all that you can see. There are no people there, no objects, just the color pink filling everything. Now, over on the far left, are your eyes still closed? Okay, good. If you're driving again, please do not close your eyes. 
On the far left, I want you to imagine the color yellow, a bright, totally yellow, yellow. And it's starting to fill up the whole left side and it's pushing against the pink. And there's a brilliant, beautiful light orange where the two colors come together. Now you have yellow and orange and pink and just there over on the right, purple. A deep, rich purple and it's starting to push its own way in. The colors are blending and mixing and making all kinds of different shades. The way single notes combine and mix and make chords and music and songs and symphonies. My favorite episode of this was when you interviewed the painter Joe Bear. Yeah. And you seem to really connect with her. Yeah, Joe Bear is an artist. She lives in Amsterdam now. Yeah. The piece that I speak to her about is um, a triptych of three paintings that are mostly white and each one has a stripe of color around the frame. You know, even being in MoMA and watching people walk by, some people loved it and some people really didn't understand why these pieces were in MoMA. Those paintings are from the 60s. She was really doing something new and breaking away from the type of art that we were used to looking at and seeing as beautiful, which is representational artwork. A thing I found so interesting and infuriating is someone returned one of her paintings. I talk about this in the podcast. Once they found out that Joe was a woman because her name was Joe, they assumed she was a man. And just knowing that she was a woman made them want to return the painting. That's incredible. And I think I was a great success in Germany. My German dealers, they misspelled my name. They spelled it (laughs) J-O-E. There's another great moment in that conversation where she basically stands behind her art 1,000%. She talks about how her art absolutely belongs to be in a museum because it's excellent. No, my work is always my work. Yeah, that's why it's genuine and good and lasted this long. And you found such relief in, in her confidence. Yeah, I found it very refreshing to hear a woman not be humble, basically. Because I feel oftentimes the opposite. At least for me, I doubt things a lot, Mm. especially while we're in the middle of creating something. But I also feel wildly confident in Broad City especially. You know, speaking of Broad City, you guys have been doing it for years now. You've met with a lot of success. And I wonder... How does it feel to write about these struggling characters now that there's a bigger distance between them and you? I mean, the first season, it felt so close to us, you know, like couldn't believe we're getting, you know, this is nuts. Like I felt way closer to Abby Abrams, even though she's always been like a heightened, amplified version of myself. And so just working more and getting to know how a show is made Now I feel so far away from the person that was so new at it. Hmm. That's one part. But then, yeah, my life, you know, Alana and and me both, like our lives are really different. Just getting used to having creative control over a thing. And now you're like loaded and you have drivers. (laughs) You have a private jet. Yeah, I do have, have a private jet. No, I mean, there'll be like an episode where I'm trying to recycle bottles and cans, which is something I have done, you know, (laughs) in my life for like extra cash. And I'm not doing that anymore, obviously. But the majority of the show is still about trying to figure your out. And like, 
I don't know if any amount of success can assist with that. And yeah. I, I'm starting to think that like you just never completely figure it out. And so I still relate to my character so much on that <laughs> level. Yeah. Maybe just not financially. <laughs> all right. Well, we have one more thing that you've got to figure out. A standard question we ask all of our guests of honor. Tell us something we don't know. It can be about you personally or a piece of trivia about the world. Ooh, this is difficult. I don't know why this is popping in my head. Okay. But when I was in high school, I did an exchange program with this high school in China, in Shanghai. Huh. But no one came to stay with me. I don't understand why. <laughs> I just went and stayed with this family in Shanghai for two weeks, and it was absolutely incredible. What did you do over there? I lived with this girl, Angelina, and her parents, and her dad was the coach or the assistant coach of the Shanghai Sharks, which is the basketball team there. Wow. And her mom was the gym teacher at the high school. And I filmed it. Like I have this footage. Like I made a mini documentary <laughs> about my experience there that no one has seen. Thank God, because without it being an actual exchange, because no one came here, this sounds abs like you're making it up completely. So thank goodness you've whipped together a doc. I should put it out. It Heck was so yeah. cool. I'm 17. Abby Jacobson, her art podcast is called A Piece of Work. Check it out wherever you download podcasts. And the fourth season of Broad City is underway now. And actually, folks, speaking of audio shows, we are going to be recording an episode of the one you're listening to right now, live in Seattle, Washington, at the historic Moore Theater. Yeah, it's on Thursday, November 16th. Guests include New York Times columnist Lindy West and musician Kyle Kraft. Don't miss it. There's more information at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. to eavesdrop. On the Mortified podcast, brave adults read aloud the most embarrassing moments from their childhood journals. The show's inspired a new book, a do-it-yourself journal for adults called My Mortified Life. Just in time for Halloween, we wanted to share this favorite from the show. It's performed by Sarah Hoops, who in middle school desperately wanted to be a vampire. Here she is reading 1990s era entries from her seventh grade diary on stage in Portland. Today, I must write to you about the beautiful boy on my bus. <laughs> Through my research, I have found his name to be Brian. <clears throat> He's probably in the fifth grade, and he plays a band instrument. <laughs> Brian has a slim build and a beautiful, definite face, like what I would call a youth. I love, I love his brown hair, somewhat long in the back with little mallard tail curls. He has almost pale skin and he moves like a falcon. A wary falcon. No, Brian is like a mother deer. Dear future, I have begun yet another book today, The Vampire Lestat. Absolutely magnificent. I am inhaling. We went to see Edward Scissorhands, and I do not believe Natalie got it like I did. 
it reminds me of my vampires in a way. <laughs> that is probably why I cried. It offends me so to hear of vampires treated the way they are. When someone makes a stupid vampire joke or a horrible vampire series commercial, they seem to be more mystical beings than mindless beasts. Thank you, Anne Rice. <clears throat> Lately, I've been working with a fantasy that I am a vampress. Mid-twenties body, Sarah. P.S. We're at war. <laughs> I have devised a new visualization. I'm a ravishing vampire who has separated from the others, for I am black. <laughs> With flowing raven hair. I'm a lone soul that hunts alone. This boy called Brian from my bus continues to plague me. He possesses an angelic beauty, one found in both genders. <laughs> and in a strange way, I long to meet him. He truly intrigues me. Brian smiled at me today when I was sad because I couldn't find a seat on the bus. Brian possesses the grace of a Doberman. <laughs> but I'm really beginning to notice boys more, really. I suppose this is normal, but it is a little embarrassing. Oh well, was bound to happen eventually. My dumb period is gonna start up again tomorrow. I am not remotely amused. <laughs> Oh, I wish I could prove to all those popular kids how beautiful and great I could be. <laughs> Yours, Sarah. Yes, your faithful Sarah has returned with more news about my chaotic, erotic, and frantic life. Once, <laughs> once again, I feel silly. <clears throat> once again, I feel silly for my unusual feelings towards Brian. I saw another youth today. <laughs> Only blonde, very beautiful young fellow. Sarah, stop this. You are a wretched girl. <laughs> I'm rather mad at Anne Rice. She has completely trapped me. I am but another, if lesser, of the many who love her writing. I despise to be just one of the many. All I desire is to be Sarah. Yours, Sarah. P.S. The war has supposedly ended. <laughs> so Natalie and I had a monstrous walk today. We talked about my recent dream, about me being a prostitute, etc. <laughs> Yours, Sarah. <laughs> Saw Brian, my beautiful youth, on the bus today. I believe he is hanging around with the wrong crowd. Beware, my youth. But um, Friday night was incredible. Due to my dance transformation, I wore blood red lipstick and nail polish. Everyone said I was completely seductive. And Jessica said I looked vampirish. Speaking of vampires, I've been having awful nosebleeds lately and severe allergies. Yours, Sarah. <laughs>
Sarah Hoops reading from her seventh grade diary on the Mortified podcast. You will find a longer version of that piece at getmortified.com. You can also grab the new Mortified book, My Mortified Life, a guided journal to gauge how much you've changed since childhood. Funny, I haven't changed the lick. Really? Seven-year-old Brendan was reading Nabokov and drinking martinis. That was his I mean, I used to use a twist back then, not olives. And now, a time for chattering class, in which we're schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. Mm. The topic today, the creator of Wonder Woman, William Marston. And our teacher is indie filmmaker Angela Robinson. That's right. Her new biopic is called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, and it tells the unconventional life story of Marston, who in the 1920s, before creating one of the most famous comic book heroes ever, was a Harvard psychology professor, an inventor, a feminist, and with his equally brilliant wife Elizabeth, lived in a polyamorous relationship with one of his students, Olive Byrne. I first asked Angela how she heard about the story. I'd kind of always been a Wonder Woman fan. I was trying to remember my first inkling of Wonder Woman. I think I may have had a lunchbox with Wonder Woman on it. And I directed my first feature. And a friend of mine who was in the movie knew about my fandom. So she bought me a book on the history of Wonder Woman as a rap gift. And then I kind of stumbled on this chapter about the Marstons and Olive Byrne, and it just blew my mind. I got super obsessed with it. And now why? Because there's about 50 different reasons why one could become obsessed (laughs) with it. Certainly as a filmmaker, it's like, oh my God, how has this never been made into a movie? Yeah. But something about the story that grabbed you? I mean, everything from that Marston, with Olive and Elizabeth's help, created the lie detector test, um, that he had all these philosophies about uh, human behavior and feminism and sexuality and... He lived in a polyamorous relationship. By the way, he lived in a polyamorous relationship. By I like the how way, you just tossed that way. in at the end. <laughs> it was just, there was so much in the story. Let's talk about the latter of those. <laughs> you want to skip straight? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a, it's the center of your film, sure, so I no, feel like that is, that's important. That's absolutely true. One of the things that really struck me in the movie is almost their naivete. When they decide that they're going to have this three-way relationship, Mm -hmm. they seem flabbergasted by the fact that they're immediately found out and that society rejects them. These are Harvard academics. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to them that maybe it would be difficult to live their lives this way? I mean, I think that's what was one of the things that I found really extraordinary about Marston is that he was a dreamer. If you read his writings and stuff, he's very enthusiastic and almost naive about all of his ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's and like, that, why not? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, he wrote this book called The Emotions of Normal People. And the first line of it is, are you normal? And it's like 500 pages basically defending why he's normal and his theories about sex and sexuality and human behavior are normal and that you're the one who's not. It it occurred to me as I was watching the film how unbelievably truthful all of the characters are to each other. (laughs) From very casual things like he'll say about his wife during casual conversation with someone they've basically just met, oh, she's a neurotic compulsive. (laughs) And the wife just kind of cheerfully nods her head. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, all of them admitting to these very edgy sexual desires with each other. Mm -hmm. And it did make me start thinking about all the ways that we don't entirely tell the truth and lots of different ways in our relationships. While you were making this movie, did that have an impact on you? Did you find yourself maybe trying to live a more truthful... Huh, that's so interesting. A couple of things. They were psychologists, and psychology was super new. Like, part of their training in early psychology was to almost analyze minute by minute 
how they were feeling. Mm-hmm. They were really their entire lives trying to get at the truth of how they were feeling and being honest and naming what they were feeling. So it was interesting to approach characters like that. Did it have an effect on me? I did realize how easily and often you lie all the time about everything. Yeah. And I got really into Marston's main theory called DISC theory. It stands for Dominance, Inducement, Submission, and Compliance. Kind of in a nutshell, we kind of came to the grand conclusion that men were inherently violent and anarchistic and women were inherently loving and nurturing. So the path to peace on the planet was to let women be in charge. Pretty progressive but, idea at the time. Yeah, a pretty progressive idea at the time. But then he also was like, men will never give up their power voluntarily. But he noticed that men would do anything for a woman if they were madly in love with her. So mm. he basically wanted to kind of create strategies for women to learn how to manipulate what he called their captivation emotion, like whatever this quality was that would make men do anything. It's amazing. It's simultaneously very progressive (laughs) and very regressive. Totally. Like simultaneously within the same, like all of his ideas within the same moment, you're just like, okay, I was with you. And then (laughs) it kind of doubles back on itself. So he wanted to kind of train men and boys to like love and respect powerful women, but he really kind of wanted women to kind of harness their allure and their sexual power to make it pleasurable for men to submit to them. So I structured all the scenes around either dominance, inducement, submission, or compliance. And I started seeing it in every interaction. His big point is that it takes place everywhere between like the police and perpetrators or teachers. Yeah, disc theory. I mean, that, that in everything we do, we are either dominating or submitting or inducing people or making them comply. And I started totally seeing that everywhere I went. That the way to do things is to induce people. People have to want to do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. If you just try to make people do stuff, they'll rebel and that causes crime and Mm -hmm. resentment. But if they want to do what you want them to do, then that's a kind of state of perfect happiness. I can see how that would be a state of happiness. You can also see where it could be a state of total fascism where you lead a bunch of people to do horrible things because you appeal to something that is seductive. It's interesting because he was about happiness. Not necessarily goodness or badness, just happiness. Just you'd be most happy if you were in a state of loving submission to something. So obviously you've got this very heady, very sociological, intimate movie. But meanwhile, at some point during the making of this film, you must have been aware that there was this big blockbuster Wonder Woman movie also coming down the pike. Tell me about making your film knowing that that movie was coming as well. I think... There was a convergence of Wonder Woman-ness, kind of. There was, no, I mean, like, I started writing it because I was so annoyed that there had been multiple Superman reboots and multiple yeah. Batman. And no Wonder Woman. I was like, how many times do we have to see Bruce Wayne's, like, parents killed in an alley? Like, over and over. And, come on, you know? And you go anywhere in the world, you say, who are the top three superheroes? It'd still be Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. And... I was just very frustrated that there wasn't. So I started to kind of explore the Marston's life. What did you think of uh, the Wonder Woman movie when it finally came out? Did you see it? It was exhilarating because on the one hand, I've talked to other people and they were like, yeah, I was crying through Wonder Woman at like weird (laughs) points because you realize you've never seen it before. You've never seen that much heroism and screen time and budget and treatment. But it was also incredibly sad because you were like, Why have we never seen this before? Mm -hmm. Like, it's 2017. 
And there's a lot of moments in my film where it resonates a lot because they were very political people, the Marston's and Olive Byrne, and they kind of came out of this moment of feminism and they had a lot of hope about how around the corner we were going to get a female president and like, you know, in no time flat. <laughs> and then you just really realize how little has changed. Angela Robinson, her new movie is called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. It's in theaters now. The other Wonder Woman movie, by the way, is the second biggest box office hit of the year. It has brought in over 800 million bucks. Long time coming. By the way, folks, if you think sex and money make for inappropriate dinner party conversation, we beg to differ. That's right. And we explain why in our forthcoming book, Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing Dinner Parties. That's correct. It's out December 5th, but you can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. Please wait to hear the rest of this episode first, though. Please. Comic Whitney Cummings will be here in a minute with etiquette advice when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Brendan consumes a laminated baguette and lives to tell the tale. <laughs> but first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is actor and comedian Whitney Cummings. After tackling pop culture catastrophes on TV's Chelsea Lately, she landed her own sitcom called, wait for it, Whitney. <laughs> what? And she co-created the long-running hit Two Broke Girls. She's also a staple on the stand-up circuit. And she has a new memoir of sorts called I'm Fine, dot, 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 and Other Lies. Mm -hmm. And Whitney, welcome to our program. Thank you. Can I say something? Yes. I don't uh -oh. think it's a memoir. Memoir makes it sound so self-indulgent and boring, although you're technically right and I know smarter than me. <laughs> I'm trying to not call it a memoir. I don't want people to think that I'm just bloviating about my childhood. No, it's weird. And when I see your picture on the cover, I don't know why I would think you were putting yourself front and center in this book. <laughs> what? That's impossible. So, I don't know what me. makes you think this is about me. Yeah. Uh, based on the giant photo of me. No, it's just it's about like my codependency and a addiction, rock bottoms, and all the things that mm. I learned. I just want people to know that it's actually useful information, not me just uh, talking about myself. But it, it is true, though, that your, your early comedy was very often third person. It was kind of like, this is how relationships go down. Mm -hmm. Boys do this, girls do this. Yes. It's become more first person. Wow. What led... How did you know that? Well, I mean, our producer told us. Oh, <laughs> No. <laughs> um, that's not true. That's but. so interesting. You know, yeah, I think as a comedian, and I don't know if you guys, you know, sort of relate in your business, but I think when you first start, I thought I had to generalize about things and talk about things that everybody related to. And it was before I heard the Chris Rock quote, the more specific you are, the more universal you are. Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, men mm -hmm. do this and women do this. Generalizations <laughs> made me feel safe. And then I realized, like, let me be more specific. Is it scary? It seems scary to me. You know, it's way. interesting. It is. It's pretty scary to be that vulnerable. But I think ultimately most of the mistakes I was making in my life, the engine of it was shame. And you can mm. release shame by doing just that, releasing it and talking about it. So there is something that's oddly relieving about it as well. Mm. Um, although I've noticed ever since I started, like, talking about really embarrassing things, other people feel they should share their embarrassing things. Is that good or bad? It's the literally, I had a woman um, in the airport walk by me the other day and she just goes, hey, Whitney, I can't stop stealing. 
<laughs> like I was like, cool, got it. Like good to know. Yeah. Um, you are known in addition to your writing for various shows for also being an incredible roast writer for celebrity roasts. Yes, it's true. Mm, really? I have and, no idea how I'm perceived. Oh, people are constantly talking about your roasting abilities. Really? They never stop telling you. <laughs> and you've appeared on these celebrity roast shows. What is the trick of doing a roast joke? Bad childhood. <laughs> for you or the person that the, you roast? I mean, everyone involved, really. That's ideal. Someone with too much self-esteem is not welcome there. For me, roast jokes are... A lot of math. You have to take a, an ostensible weakness of a person, mm-hmm. add it to a topical incendiary current event, mm-hmm. figure Got out a it. way to link them in a short, punchy joke. Every joke is based on a, a that's topical just, event? It doesn't have to be, but that's kind of like a formula that works. Like Greg Giraldo used to have this ability to make people laugh at roasts without that formula. Like one time he just said to Larry the Cable Guy, he just like very angrily yelled, why are you so popular? (laughs) And it was just a question that he yelled enraged and it defied all the rules of a roast joke because usually a roast joke is like, you're so old, you're so ugly, you're such a failure, you're such a bad actor. Sometimes you just have to write down just the most offensive thing. So it's like if it was right now, you just write down uh, Puerto Rico flood, Hurricane Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, all the Harveys, Uh, you know, Vegas. You would just write the things that are the most tragic and awful, then find out what the flaws are of the other person and just figure out a way to marry them. But obviously the words too soon were probably minted (laughs) specifically for things like Hurricane Harvey. Yeah. And yet your job at that point is to push those limits. Have you found limits at at a roast? It's a great question. Like, I don't think there's such a thing in roasting as a limit. It's more you have to be funnier than you are offensive always. So if you're going to do a Hurricane Mm -hmm. Harvey joke or a Vegas joke, it better be an A-plus banger. You know, it better (laughs) not be sloppy. Is, Is the writing a book like this in some ways like roasting yourself? That's a good question. What a poignant question. Thank you. Maybe. I don't think it's, I mean, yes, I definitely deprecate a lot in the book, but like I just am saying facts of decisions I made. I mean, it's not really an opinion. The roast is exaggeration. All right. Let's turn to some other real life problems. Oh, great. Which are those of our listeners. You can roast them or not. Oh, good. This comes from Robbie. Robbie. VR website writes, I am walking in my city neighborhood Mm -hmm. and I see an unlocked car parked on the street. Mm -hmm. I don't know who the car belongs to. Do I leave it be or open the door and try to lock it myself? Robbie, mind your own business. Keep walking. Stay in your lane. I I have to admit, I thought this was an interesting question. You think it's that easy? Because I am in recovery for codependence, which the main Mm. deal is stay in your lane. And before you solve Mm. a problem, first make sure it's your problem. If someone's, if that door is unlocked, maybe he's running in because he forgot his key and then they can't get back in their car and they didn't have their key. That would be funny if you lock someone out of their car. Exactly. Yes. If someone's car is unlocked, either they deserve for it to get stolen because they're on Instagram liking pictures of porn stars or they wanted it to be unlocked because maybe they're doing something. Mind Those your are the own only business. only two possibilities. Yes. Also suspicious here. Why is Robbie, he's like, I'm walking in my city neighborhood and I see an unlocked car. How do you know it's unlocked? Those buttons from the 70s no longer, you don't see them anymore. Yeah, there's not that little nub. It could be a 79 Nova. <laughs> Let people Robbie, have... this also seems like the first scene of a bad movie. Like, do you might as well just put yourself in the trunk of the car and lock it because oh. something bad 
that is going to happen. It could be a, a romantic comedy, though. Maybe that's how he sets off the car alarm and, and then he meets nope. the love of his life. That movie just bombed at the box office, All right. just yeah. as you said that. that. Was, but that I think worst. you got your answer, Robbie. No question. Sorry, right, Robbie. Robbie. This next question comes from Andrea in Ohio. Andrea writes, how many hours weekly should I allow my hubby to play fantasy football? I get that it's a fun outlet for him, but he kind of obsesses. Like, I don't know how many hours a week it is. Here's what I'll say. I've learned recently that you accept people for who they are Mm. and you don't try to change them. That is new information to me. I thought you, like, meet someone and, like, you know how you, like, flip a house? I thought you, like, could flip a person. That's not real. (laughs) So I have now learned you just accept them as is. Wow. But there must be a limit. Isn't that close to getting walked upon? But here's what I'll say. Do you want... To be in a relationship where you're scold, I mean, that's what you do with your child, not your husband. Mm. A relationship, in my experience, when you tell guys what to do and take things away from them, it becomes weirdly maternal, and then sex feels like incest. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> Don't do it. Like, you can set a boundary, like, that makes it more unattractive to him. It's like smoking. I'm in a relationship mm-hmm. where I was like, I'm not going to tell you to stop smoking, but since it's detrimental to me, when you smoke, I'm going to leave. Yes. There has to be a consequence for your his action. All right. There you yep. go, Andrea. Last question comes from Christine in Tucson, Arizona. On a plane recently, the person seated next to me repeatedly coughed vigorously into the air with no attempt at covering her mouth or restraining the sharing of her cold germs. No, that's hard. Would it have been rude to hand her a packet of tissues? No. No. I fly a lot, and I set very strong boundaries on planes. I tell people to turn down their music. I'm big on that. I believe that Mm. you have to claim your space. And if it comes to your health, if someone's coughing out their germs into your face. But here's the other thing I'll say. If you're on a plane, you're inhaling germs the whole time. So it's not like that person coughing is going to make or break your flu. My thing is if it happens once— Suck it up and move on. If it happens again, then do something. All right. So I'm retracting my first thing. Especially the whole idea of staying in your lane. But that's your lane. If you're on a plane sitting next to somebody, is the plane's your lane. The plane's your lane. Don't sneeze into my health lane. But was it a sneeze or a cough? It's a cough. Cough. Vigorous cough. No, but the tissue's not going to, what's a tissue going to do? And why do you have tissues? What's going on with you? (laughs) Yeah. If you have tissues in your purse, obviously you're draining from somewhere. Although although Mm. a friend of mine did point out that as you get older, you tend to have (laughs) tissues on you. (laughs) So maybe this is just an older person. uh, Maybe. Mm. Anyways. Um, I have a question though. I was on the subway this morning. And there was a woman watching a TV show really loud on her phone. Subway is different because Subway, you're not spending $700 on a ticket. So wait, so then it's okay for them to blast you? Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, that one feels a little bit like you're on the subway. There's way worse things. No, I I, I like the the New York rule of everyone just shuts the hell up and has their Oh, is that what people in New York do? I've never heard that rule or seen it executed. In the morning. You mean people just scream at two in the morning as if they're being murdered constantly? New Yorkers. Brendan, continue to dream of your super quiet New York City. Yes. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us and telling our audience how to behave. Thank you for having me. I hope this was helpful. Whitney Cummings, who was not invited to visit me, her new book is called I'm Fine and Other Lies. To hear an extended version of that conversation, and trust us, you really should. Go check out our podcast feed via Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And as always, we're taking your etiquette questions. If you need guidance on how to behave, head to dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, do you remember when people loved bread? 
I remember dimly reading about it in school. Exactly. A long time this ago. Before the purging of the carbs and the gluten wars. <laughs> yep. Uh, but there was a time when people unabashedly loved baked dough, mm. and one bakery in Manhattan is making it hard not to. It's called Arcade Bakery, and their laminated baguette has eaters in ecstasy. So it's like a long loaf wrapped in plastic? Exactly. It's a waterproof baguette. Oh. No. No. <laughs> to find out what it is, I met with Roger Garral, who owns the arcade. First, though, I had to ask him his opinion of bread haters. We had anti-carb, and then we got into this gluten phobia, and both of those have seemed to settle down. I mean, my perspective is, you know, if you look at the history of nutritional claims in American society, you just have a lot of stuff that's come and gone, and you don't have very much useful information, but we have 10,000 years of bread as sustaining human evolution and civilization. So, I mean, on the one hand, we have this uh, food product that's critical for human civilization. And then on the other hand, we have a lot of marketing stuff that needs to sell magazines. So you pick and choose what you want. The other thing I'll say is if you were to analyze the fittest people on the planet, you know, the highest performing athletes on the planet, their diet, not exclusively, but in general, features an incredible amount of carbohydrates. So, you know, take that with... Uh, a grain of pretzel salt. A grain of pretzel salt. The centerpiece of your success is the laminated baguette. Can you tell me, or for people who don't know, what that is? So laminated means layered. The most common laminated products are croissant and puff pastry. And what we layer in baking typically is dough and butter. And so this is uh, something a little bit different because here, instead of using a croissanto or puff pastry dough, we're layering baguette dough with butter. We only laminate a fraction of the dough. So most of it is just regular baguette dough with an outer layer of the laminated dough. So we just have the crust that's really laminated, but the interior of the baguette is still baguette dough. So everyone loves baguettes. Why change the recipe at all? There's no need to change the recipe, but I was working for a competition, and as part of the competition, we had to do decorative baguettes. So the problem was to come up with something that was slightly new for a decorative baguette. It wasn't meant to be eaten, so uh, the layering can be really attractive. So it was more an aesthetic decision than it was uh, you know, something to think about eating. The other side of this question is, having interviewed some French chefs and, um, and pastry chefs over the years, has, has anyone gotten uptight about this? Do they feel like this is um, a corruption of some, some classic item? I, I mean, I haven't gotten that feedback, but I would totally respect that feedback. I mean, uh, that makes sense to me. Um, it's not, you know, a traditional baguette. I prefer the regular baguette to a laminated baguette myself, so I, I totally would understand that. All right, fair enough. Well, we have one of these before us, and it looks like a classic baguette, except, yeah, there's this beautiful layer around it. And then is that salt that we have on? This one is pretzel salt, and then the other one we have is with poppy seeds and sesame seeds and salt. All right, would you mind cutting the pretzel salt one open for me, and then maybe you can show me the distinction between the baguette dough and the lamination? Oh, yeah, so on the outside you can see the flaky part. That's going to be the laminated section of the dough. And then the interior is the regular baguette dough. But um, one of the trade-offs you get to make the product really look nice is we bake it in a special pan. As a result, it doesn't have as nice of an interior as a traditional baguette does. So the mouthfeel is a little bit heavier. All right, I'm going to taste this. I'm guessing you probably don't want to taste any more of this today. It is 
a dream. It is, it's, uh, it's much butterier on the outside, and there is a density on the inside. So now we're going to try the, the seeded baguette. And these are poppy seeds, uh, sesame seeds, anything else? And a little bit of salt as well. All right. I think my producer made us cut this just so we have to take it home. That's fine, yes. By all means, take it home. This, sometimes I suspect these, <laughs> these pieces are just a way to get Krista into these places she dreams of eating. Let me taste it. Mmm. I love that. Is there a little char on there, or is that just the poppy? I think that's just the poppy, yeah. Exquisite. And this feels a little less, like even looking at the crust, it's a little less uh, buttery than maybe the, uh, the pretzel salt. I think maybe the seeds, you know, balance out the butteriness, so they undercut the butteriness. This is definitely a new weapon in the war on carbs. Look out, bread haters. Roger Garral, owner of the Arcade Bakery. We have pictures of those beauteous baguettes at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And congratulations to our producer, Krista, who guides our editorial decisions with her palate, apparently. Bravo. Folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, comedian Tig Notaro will be our guest, as will Yorgos Lanthimos, director of the Oscar-nominated The Lobster and the new film The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Thanks, as always, to our senior producer, Jackson Musker, associate producer, Krista Ripple, associate digital producer, Christina Lopez, and intern, Emerald Douglas, Drew Justed engineered and now before we leave you here's one for the road a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's parties music legend Fats Domino passed away on Tuesday the New Orleans great was one of the first rock stars ever and his influence went way beyond America's borders a few years back Jamaican reggae legend Jimmy Cliff told us a few of his favorite party songs and the first he picked was from Fats Domino here's Jimmy to set it up the first time I performed to an audience bigger than what I would perform to in school was I performed the Fats Domino song, a cappella, and that song was Be My Guest. Come on, baby, and be my guest. Come join the party and be the rest. I heard Fats Domino on the radio in Jamaica when I was a, was a little kid. At nights, we could pick up radio in New Orleans. And uh, that's how I heard Fats Domino on the radio there. I love the sound. The beat just was just like popping right through the radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for being our guest. Bon appetit.